from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies, like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Stranger Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. In the West, we have very limited number of words for different states of consciousness. In Eastern thinking and religion, there may be 50, 80, 100 words for different possible states. And this phenomenon forces us to think about subtleties. And, you know, we don't like to think about subtleties. High percentage of people will remember until they've had a chance uh, to explore their abductions as dreams. Okay? Now, when they call it a dream, is it a dream that recollects an abduction? Is it an abduction they're calling a dream? There's all kinds of ways the word dream is used. There's just an experience that happens at night, you call it a dream, because that's the way you were raised to think. If you take an abduction experiencer through the night of an experience, uh, there is that moment of truth when they realize they weren't really asleep when this happened. Now, there's a sort of like, you, know, you went to bed, and it's very important to go, you know, reconstruct the events of the night. Like, okay, what time do you go to bed? You're watching television, and you went to bed, and then what happened, and then, and then, and then this light came in. Now, but you didn't say you fell asleep. And that's a moment of truth. And at that moment, a shift in consciousness occurs. It's not as if they're just like an ordinary waking consciousness. Uh, one of the people that Bud and I have worked with in, in New York describes... It's as if the aliens come through a screen. They break through it's like a scrim, which is the screen in the theater. It's as if they shatter one reality and come into this reality. The person is not asleep, but they're in another state of consciousness, but they're fully present in that state of consciousness, but it's a different state of consciousness. So it's a true experience, but in another state of consciousness. 
and we don't have language for that. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 5, Unseen Realms of the Infinite. On June 13, 1992, a conference convened on the campus of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Titled The Abduction Study Conference, it brought together researchers, experiencers, and a lone skeptic in an attempt to make sense of the apparent alien abduction phenomenon. It's a little hard to picture this now because alien abductions have largely faded from public consciousness. But these were prominent people in their respective fields who were looking at what they felt was the very likely reality that people, perhaps millions of people, had been abducted by aliens. What were the consequences? What should be done? The conference was organized by John Mack, who's at Harvard, and David Pritchard, a prominent physicist at MIT, who had become intrigued by the subject. Pritchard had looked at the ufology landscape in 1992 and realized that there was quite a bit of research that had been done, but almost none of it had been published. An academic conference, he thought, was the proper way for these researchers to present their findings and then have discussions about them. It was an attempt at a serious academic look at the phenomenon. But while it was held on the MIT campus, MIT did not actually sponsor the conference. Not surprisingly, the subject was considered controversial. John Mack biographer, Ralph Blumenthal. Now, MIT didn't sponsor this conference, but they gave it a venue because this professor, Dave Pritchard, was very eminent and he wanted a place to hold a conference. So it attracted atomic scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists, religious scholars, a broad cross-section of academia, and people who were really interested in getting at this mystery, which it was. So for five days in June of 1992, they discussed all this. The one professed skeptic was Robert Schaefer, who had worked with legendary UFO researcher Philip Kloss and was himself a leading skeptical voice in ufology. Here he is talking about the conference. They were very serious about this. Uh, big conferences like this don't happen all that often, especially not, this is not a conference that was open to the public. It's only people who were invited to attend. And actually they invited, they wanted to, to make a, a show of having skeptics there to show that they were, you know, open, that they were not afraid of skeptics. Because some ufologists, you know, they'll basically run and hide in a hole if somebody's going to uh, critically examine their claims. As Blumenthal mentions, the conference attracted experts in a number of subjects for an interdisciplinary effort at making sense of the reports that were being obtained by UFO abduction researchers like John Mack, Bud Hopkins, and David Jacobs. The conference featured about 100 presentations. Several people had more than one presentation as the conference organizers tried to create a coherent, comprehensive picture of what they believed was happening. In many ways, the conference was a venue for Mack and Hopkins and other ufologists. They'd been at the forefront of identifying what they saw as an abduction crisis 
and this was their opportunity to present their findings to a scientific audience for their response. This included giving presentations on their research methods and on specific cases they felt were especially compelling. They thought that they had uh, one big new case and a whole bunch of other ones that they thought were so well documented and everything. This was going to be like their revelation to the world. Look at this great stuff, this great proof that we have. Okay, we can drop this upon the world. We can reveal this. And so that's what they were trying to do. And of course, it didn't turn out <laughs> the way that they were hoping. This big case was the so-called Brooklyn Bridge case that involved the alleged abduction of a woman identified as Linda Cortile. We looked at this incident in episode 10 of the first season of Strange Arrivals. As time passed, the story grew until it became too convoluted and incredible for all but the most committed abduction adherents. In the end, it was a blow to the credibility of the field. But that came after this conference. The conference was also a chance for the UFO researchers to present their methods and results to a scientific audience. The expectation was that the scientists would affirm that their methods were valid. But again, the reality was a little different. He had all kinds of psychology, all kinds of psychologists and physicists and everybody in this conference here. And as they were talking, uh, like Bud Hopkins and so on, and talking about these surveys that they were doing and such, and a whole bunch of uh, psychologists in the audience, and that's not right because you didn't you know, quantify this. The survey that Schaefer is talking about is known as the Roper Poll. The Roper Poll is famous in UFO circles. It's sought to determine to some degree the number of people in the U.S. who had been abducted by UFOs. The idea for it came from a man named Robert Bigelow, the owner of the discount motel chain Budget Suites of America, founder of Bigelow Aerospace, and a leading figure in funding UFO studies. He provided the funds to conduct the survey. The survey was conducted face-to-face -face rather than by phone. It asked respondents a series of questions which the designers, Hopkins, Jacobs, and a sociologist named Rob Westrom, thought would identify people who had likely been abducted, even in cases where the respondent didn't remember the experience. And the results? That 2% of the population, or 3.7 million Americans, were, in Bud Hopkins' words, highly likely to be UFO abductees. They felt that this number was a conservative estimate. Like so much of ufology, the Roper Poll seems to mimic science without actually adhering to scientific rigor. And the scientists at the conference noticed. Often, the most interesting parts of conference proceedings are the questions and comments that follow presentations. This conference was no different. After a presentation on the Roper Poll, sociologist Robert Hall expressed his reservations about the poll. I'm sorry, but all due respect to Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs, who have done a lot of things very valuable in this field. I have to say that I think this survey was the worst waste of research money I've ever seen and a terrible, terrible lost opportunity. I think with proper advanced planning, it could have been a very valuable survey, but it does not provide any scientific evidence about the prevalence of these events. After another presentation, the poll was again the subject of stern questioning. 
David Jacobs protested that he didn't believe that he and others were making any outlandish claims as a result of the poll. Hypnotherapist Joe Nyman replied, reasonably, I think, I don't agree with that, Dave. I think you are making an outlandish claim. It specifically stated that these are the number of abductees and 2.5% of the population are abductees. They screwed it up completely. And Bud Hopkins said uh, from, you know, the speaker's platform, he said, well, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad you guys are telling me this because you're the experts and we brought you here so that you could give us feedback. I don't understand these things. I'm just an artist. I don't understand about psychological testing and so on. Their case, as it were, was not nearly as solid as they thought it was, as it was immediately apparent from having, you know, a number of these psychologists in the audience who were not themselves actually into ufology, but who are into psychological testing and comparisons of uh, various things. Despite these issues, not everyone saw the conference as a failure. In fact, people point to the conference as making a compelling case for the abduction phenomenon, even today. Again, Ralph Blumenthal talking about the conference proceedings. They made a record of their discussions. It came out in a thick book two years later. It was embargoed at the time, but it remains a very authoritative account of the best research of all these scholars. And, you know, what I like to say is that the so-called skeptics and debunkers who poo-poo this whole notion of alien encounters and dismiss it as ridiculous need to do the research because the research consists of looking at volumes like this alien discussions account of the MIT conference to really understand that the strength of the evidence, it's circumstantial evidence to be sure, but these accounts that are very vivid and coherent and consistent and you can't really challenge these accounts until you know what they really are. So uh, a lot of the skeptics are lazy. They haven't done the work and they just say this is ridiculous. Well, of course it's ridiculous. It makes no sense in our world. And yet these accounts are so vivid and so consistent and so credible. Uh, when you look at the people from all walks of life who are coming uh, out with this, including children, not only the Ariel school children, but children as young as two years old who John Mack interviewed who told stories of being taken from their cribs and flown into the sky by alien beings. And these kids, you know, haven't read books and they haven't seen movies. This is just stories that, that they've told their parents and told John Mack. So that was the importance of the MIT conference and, and the research he did. It gave credibility to this phenomenon that once you really go into it, it stands up. It's very difficult to challenge. What I find really interesting about John Mack is here was an obviously very smart, very accomplished guy. He studied alien abductions, worked with experiencers, and came to believe unequivocally that people were being abducted in mass numbers. But this was based on the testimony of the experiencers. There was no real physical evidence, certainly not of the kind you'd expect with the sheer number of cases. So how do you resolve this contradiction? after the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. It seems to me that the tension that lies at the heart of ufology and the alien abduction phenomenon is this. There are thousands and thousands of UFO encounters and far fewer but still numerous tales of alien abduction. But to this day, there is no single piece of the kind of evidence one would expect in abundance based on the sheer number of cases. Someone who thinks seriously about UFOs has to confront the question of why this evidence does not exist. John Mack wrestled with this question and arrived at an answer that is both strange and not surprising because it reaches back to his pre-existing beliefs. We saw how his devotion to environmentalist and peace movements was reflected in the messages the aerial students said they received. In explaining how the phenomenon leaves no physical traces, he looked to his beliefs about spirituality and realities not accounted for in Western science. This is John Mack being interviewed informally on camera by philosopher Terence McKenna at the 1992 International Transpersonal Conference in Prague. He mentions the term anima mundi, which refers to the concept that there is a connection between all living things in the world, much like a soul in an individual. The world of both spirit with form and spirit without form, or the anima mundi, whatever your language for it, the great spirit, the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, it, we have lost contact with it. It signals us we don't listen. There are various ways that certain people have revelations and experiences. Occasionally, the more advanced spiritual people among us are reconnecting with the spirit. But for most of us, the only language that we know now is the language of the material world. So it's as if the divinity say, okay, if that's all you understand, I'll give it to you in the material world. I'll give you physical manipulations. I'll give you reproductive connection. I'll give you cuts, scars, scoop marks. I'll give you burned earth where the UFOs land. And I'll give you an experience which is consistent among various people 
which empirically everybody agrees that photographs of UFOs, it's showing up in the physical world. It may not be of the physical world as we know it, but it communicates in the physical world. What is Max saying here? He believes that the phenomenon is essentially a non-material or spiritual one. But we have, for the most part, lost our ability to access that world. So it appears to people in strange physical ways to let itself be known. So through this experience in the body, because that's the important point here, this experience is not just information in an intellectual sense. They experience these abductions in the body. And as several abductees have said to me, we only know the body now as embodied creatures. If you want to reach us, you have to reach us through the body because that's the only language we understand. So that tells us that the creatures are real in some sense. As we have seen earlier, Mac had taken part in attempts to access a spiritual realm through meditation, taking LSD, and most importantly, through holotropic breathing, a controlled breathing technique intended to cause non-normal states. In 1994, science writer Jill Namark interviewed Mac for an article in Psychology Today. In it, they discuss Mac's experience with this technique. The first time he tried it, Mac not only, quote, re-experienced his mother's death when he was eight months old. He also felt, quote, my father's grief at the time. I got more out of one session than I had in all my years of analysis. Later in the session, he said, I became a Russian father in the 16th century, a man whose four-year-old son was decapitated by Mongol hordes. Mack found analogs to his conception of the phenomenon existing in both the material and spiritual realms. He saw the stories of shamans as describing experiences similar to those of abductees. In his book, Abduction, he quotes the great Romanian sociologist, Mircea Eliada. During his initiation, the shaman learns how to penetrate into other dimensions of reality and maintain himself there. His trials, whatever the nature of them, endow him with a sensitivity that can perceive and integrate these new experiences through the strangely sharpened senses of the shaman, the sacred manifests itself. He would bring the shaman concept to his work with experiencers, making those connections concrete, even if the meaning wasn't always clear to the subject. This is abduction experiencer Elizabeth Anglin, who worked with Mac. He listened a lot and he took a lot of notes. And then when you wanted to get his opinion, he would say some blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I think it might be a shamanic thing. Mac would also talk about the phenomenon in terms of what he considered the false choice between the real and the not real. He wrote, we've got make-believe phenomena and we've got reality. I think we need a category of phenomena for which we have no category. Ralph Blumenthal. Well, he said that this phenomenon has a way of penetrating our reality. And when it penetrates, it penetrates with a great deal of vividness. There's nothing subtle about it. These people who re reported these encounters say, this was more real to me than reality. This was not a dream. John Mack wrote a book on nightmares. He studied dreams and nightmares. And these people said, 
look, I know the difference between a nightmare and reality. This was not a nightmare. So the best he could come up with was that this was some kind of a reality that was penetrating our reality. It was absolutely real, but not our everyday reality. It was happening in some other dimension or in some other way that he could not explain. But it was absolutely real to the people who encountered it. The phenomenon is real, but not from our reality. What does this mean? To me, it sounds a little like stubbornness. Sure, I can't prove it's real, but that's because you're only willing to consider our reality. But what reason do we have to believe that there is another reality? We seem to be far adrift of science. Just how far adrift is clear when this reasoning is applied to topics outside the abduction phenomenon. This passage from Jill Namark's Psychology Today article begins with a quote from Mac. He says, quote, I know this sounds like hedging, but we don't know in what reality this occurs. False and true memory don't apply. This is powerfully real, but in what reality? I asked him where he felt he belonged in the raging controversy over memory and abuse. Does he think memories of satanic abuse might be happening in an alternate reality? He postulated that indeed they might, saying, perhaps those memories are experientially true, but they didn't factually happen in this reality. What does this mean? In the fourth dimension, or perhaps the sixth dimension? So again, this article was written in 1994, before the so-called satanic panic had been comprehensively debunked. He says about a controversy that is raging within psychology, his field of expertise, that it's possible that memories of abuse are true, but from a different reality. What does that mean? What do you do with this idea? People were on trial at the time on charges of abuse stemming from these quote-unquote recovered memories. The more I read John Mack, the more I got the sense that he was approaching the topic backwards. He wasn't gathering this testimonial evidence and trying to determine whether it described a phenomenon that was actually physically happening and not just a psychological perception. He assumed that the stories were things that had actually happened, and he was trying to figure out how to explain them. And it leads to reasoning like this example from Mack's 1994 book, Passport to the Cosmos, where the following is suggested as necessary to understanding what is going on. An awareness of unseen realities of the infinite in which the laws of space-time reality as we know them seem not to apply. This can create a dilemma for a mind that would stay in the duality of internal-external, for the phenomenon appears to be both, or now one, then the other. In fact, Mack even puts forward the idea that whatever is behind the phenomenon is actually intentionally creating a situation where there is enough evidence to convince believers, but not enough to win over skeptics. It is as if the agent or intelligence at work here were parodying, mocking, tricking, and deceiving the investigators, providing just enough physical evidence to win over those who are prepared to believe in the phenomenon, but not enough to convince the skeptic. In this apparently frustrating situation, there may lie a deeper truth and possibility. He goes on to say that the phenomenon might be inviting us to change our way of looking at things. 
to expand our consciousness, to do, in other words, what John Mack wants us to do. John Mack died tragically when he was hit by a car in London on September 27, 2004. He was 74 years old. His final years were marked by two controversies, which I won't go into depth about, but which should be mentioned. The first was a critical article in the April 25, 1994 edition of Time magazine. It featured the revelation that one of Mac's subjects, a woman named Donna Bassett, was a debunker. Earlier, she had reported to Mac in a session that, among other things, she had been on a spacecraft with both John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, and that she'd comforted the crying Khrushchev. Again, Ralph Blumenthal. Yeah, this was a very sad episode. Uh, she wanted to destroy him. She thought he was a cult leader, and uh, she'd made the whole thing up. Well, it turns out that uh, she probably did have real alien encounter experiences because she told them to other people before encountering John Mack. She had a very strange background herself, and um, for whatever reason, she was determined to bring John Mack down. And Time Magazine picked this up and made a big issue of it, and it, it hurt John Mack tremendously. It was damaging to him, no doubt, but it did not undermine all the other cases he had dealt with, and it was just a very, a very sad episode. There was more to the article than Bassett's allegations, a general skepticism about his work. One passage reads, Psychologists and ethicists do not question Mack's sanity so much as his motives and methodology. They charge that he is misusing the techniques of hypnosis, trying to shape the memories of his subjects to suit his vision of an intergalactic future, and very possibly endangering the emotional health of his patients in the process. Quote, if this were just an example of some zany new outer limit of how foolish psychology and psychiatry can be in the wrong hands, we'd look at it, roll our eyes, and walk away, end quote, says University of California Berkeley professor Richard Oshie. Quote, but the use of his techniques in counseling is substantially harming lots of people, end quote. The second controversy was that Harvard launched an unprecedented secret committee to look into Max's research. Harvard was very uncomfortable with his research and eventually convened a secret committee, an in inquisition I call it, because that's a word that they used at one point, to see if he was doing anything wrong, inappropriate. And they kept asking him what is his proof, and he kept saying, well, I really don't have proof apart from the stories that all these people have told. The Harvard committee echoed the concerns of Richard Oshie about Mack's treatment of his subjects. Mack's lawyer wrote a letter during the inquiry that was made public and quoted in an article in the student newspaper, The Harvard Crimson. The letter asserted that a draft of the committee report stated, quote, to communicate in any way whatsoever to a person who has reported a close encounter with an extraterrestrial life form that this experience might well have been real is professionally irresponsible on the part of any academic, scientific, professional person, end quote. With this letter, the committee's work became public and was viewed in some quarters as being a threat to free inquiry. In the end, the committee, quote, 
reaffirmed Dr. Mack's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinions without impediment, end quote. It concluded, quote, Dr. Mack remains a member in good standing of the Harvard Faculty of Medicine. I want to come back to the abduction conference because there was something that emerged from the conference that I think is important to remember about John Mack. Western Michigan University professor Michael Swords wrote a review of the conference proceedings in a 1997 issue of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. He wrote, The conference at MIT split the public unity of American researchers into, at least, two major schools of opinion, which deeply disagree to this day. Both continue to believe that the phenomenon is extraterrestrially based. Hopkins, Jacobs, and others were present to elaborate what some have come to refer to as the dark marauders view of abductions. But conference co-organizer and world-known Harvard psychologist John Mack presented an entirely different spin these experiences are extraterrestrially caused, but are positively transformational for the human spirit. What sticks with me about Mack was his essential optimism. He saw the abduction phenomenon as being a force for what he considered to be good in the world. And I think this optimism carried over to the way he interacted with his subjects. I agree with Richard Ofshee and the draft of the Harvard Committee Report that telling your patients that they have had real alien encounters is hugely problematic. But Mac, in contrast with Bud Hopkins, and as we will see, David Jacobs, tried to bolster his subjects. Again, Elizabeth Anglin. And Mac, he wouldn't poo-poo you and say, oh, you poor little victim. He'd be like, you've been working full-time, you've been going to school full-time, and you survived that. And you survived that like twice a week for the past how many months? So you know what you are? You're a survivor. That's what you are. You're not a victim. You're a survivor. And Hopkins would really sort of, and my sense of it as time went on, was he was really getting off on the victimization of it and saying, oh, these poor victims, these poor victims, these poor victims. But also at the same time, he's sort of controlling the narrative more than I felt Mac ever did. And Jacobs was worse. Much worse next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El-Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey and supervising producer Josh Thane. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals. And find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.